there's no there's absolutely no benefit in being afraid of suggesting your change or, or trying to make your change like that's you know it's really easy to talk yourself out of you know oh this isn't big enough to bother that other project with or, or whatever you know no matter how small or trivial you might try and convince yourself that that thing could be do it anyway make the change send the pull request you know if it is something super trivial the worst thing you're going to do is learn how to do better next time what generally happens though is you you don't even need to learn that because the very act of trying to contribute, even when it turns out of the failure, ends up normally motivating most projects to go in the direction you wanted them to go in. And I, and I think people need to realize sort of that power of power of trying and failing is worth a thousand mailing list posts. On the show today is Richard Brown. Richard is a Linux distribution engineer at SUSE and is the former chairman of OpenSUSE. Richard, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. So I'm pretty sure we've actually bumped into each other at some point in time at some conference somewhere, but I'm not 100% Probably. sure. Probably. FOSTEM, LinuxCon, yeah, something so, somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. They're, they're all over the place. But I figured, you know, let me let me have you on and kind of ask you more of the personal side of the story to, to find out how you came to be where you are. Because obviously, we all love technology, but there's that personal side. And I really always find it interesting to hear kind of people's personal stories of how they ended up where they are and why open source is important to them. So to start off, was technology always something that you were interested in when you were younger? Did you grow up thinking, I want to be and do something in science and technology? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I got my first computer, Commodore 64, when I was like four, because I had the luxury of a, a uncle who living who was living in Hong Kong. So you know, by the time I was born, the same year the Commodore 64 came out, so it was only four years old. But by then, it was obsolete. Um, so yeah, he gave yeah, hand, hand it down to his his little nephew, uh, and yeah, I just fell in love with that thing, and yeah. Computers have been a big part of my life sort of ever since. Okay, so starting with the Commodore 64, how did you then come to the point of finding out that Linux was a thing? Do you remember when you first learned about Linux? Yeah, um, that would have been, I was at school, um, sort of uh, maybe not the, the long, uh, as you say, America, senior year or so, but yeah, getting, yeah, been there for a couple of years for sure. Um, and was quite heavily involved in in uh, the sort of IT clubs and stuff at school. And yeah, my teacher caught me hacking into the system more than one occasion. And yeah, he taught me, you know, if you can break it, you have to learn to fix it. So, you know, that, that all helped work well. Um, and at that, with the time they were using Novell and NetWare and all that fun stuff. And that was about the same time as Novell buying SUSE actually. So I, yeah, I can't, my first installations were Slackware. So, but it was all around the kind of same time of then, yeah, then that kind of putting it all on my radar and diving into the, the Linux world from well, the Windows and NetWare. So it seems from discussions with people that I've had that either they learn about open source and how it works and then learn that, oh, Linux is one of these open source things, or they learn about Linux and then through that, they learn about open source. Would you say you fall into that second camp? Absolutely. Yeah, it was Linux first and, and open source second. 
um, yeah, and and you know, being able to contribute back to that thing that we're using or fix the things ourselves, which was well, actually, that was something we were doing with Netware anyway. But yeah, Nivo was a kind of a weird company of that. If they were both very proprietary and yet very well connected to their customers. So, so since you brought up contributions, do you happen to remember the the first project that you contributed to or? Yeah, okay. Open Susan. Really? Do you remember? Do you happen to remember yeah, what, my, what the change was? Well, actually, actually, it would have it would have been Susa at the time, and it would have been a bug report um, because yeah, that was before Open Susa happened. Um, then yeah, my first sort of real contributions would have been back to Open Susa somewhere. Um, I bet you in in the Open Build service we could probably find it, um, but I, I don't know off the top of my head. I'd guess it's some trivial, actually, probably some trivial theming fix for GNOME because that that. Yeah, I, I was kind of arrogant enough to think that, you know, my theme settings were good enough for everybody else. Do you remember as, you know, a, a new or new-ish Linux user, understanding that you have the ability to kind of to give back, do you remember how you felt when the first thing that you submitted got accepted and pulled in? Um, yeah, Yes and no. I, I mean, I, uh, the, at least for me, and I think actually for quite a lot of contributors, there's... Uh, you know the uh, the first contributions, or in fact many contributions, aren't done altruistically. You know, they're not, you're not giving back because you want to make it better for everybody's sake. You're giving back because you want to make it easier for yourself in the long run. Um, so, I th- yeah, most of my, especially my early contributions, it was more a feeling of great. That's something I don't have to worry about when I install OpenSUSE or whatever myself anymore. You know, it, it's one less problem next time because upstream is now doing what I would have done manually anyway. Yeah, I know for myself, I think the first contrib- few contributions to different projects are always, this is something that kind of annoys me and I, I, wa- I want this to go away. I pretty much, that's pretty much all I do. I know spe- <laughs> Still to this day. Yeah, I know specifically uh, with the limited desktop that I'm now one of the developers of, uh, my first contribution was actually a shortcut because you could show hidden files and you had to go up into the menu. And I'm like, Every file manager on the planet, it's control H to do this. So I don't have to click through the menu. This needs to happen. And sure enough, that was the first thing I did. So a lot of open source people that I talk to, they kind of have an aha moment where they kind of fully grok the open source perspective and all the possibilities that it it enables. Others, however, it's just kind of a slow, gradual process of of an understanding that they come to. Would you say that yours was the longer process or were there some moments individually that kind of stand out as like that that was when i got it yeah i think one of the big ones for me was the the open susa conference back in 2011 um here in numberk actually yeah i live here now it's kind of weird um but uh that was yeah that was my well my first ever open source conference of any type first time sort of meeting face to face you know dozens of people that i've been corresponding with only via mailing lists and, and, and bugs and and it was a combination of yeah, the crazy people that I was meeting, the conversations we had, um, seeing how how fast the, the entire project, you know, bit, bits and pieces all over the place, literally went from sort of zero to a thousand in in change just in a period of you know a weekend basically, um, because everybody's there, everybody's talking about that, and it, it really kind of cemented in me that it, it's it, it is more about the people than the technology because you 
get the right people in the right rooms and yeah, the, whatever the, however complicated the thing was, I mean, we're talking about here, like this was like, you know, the system D discussions. Um, and yeah, like I, I can't help but now look back and compare those discussions we had in a warehouse in Nuremberg versus the discussions you see on the Debian mailing list. And it's like basically OpenSUSE had system D done and dusted in a day, like bump done. Yes, we're doing it. Gone. Yeah. Yeah. We all know how the other flamboles went, um, and and that that was that was a massive aha moment for me. Um, plus, that was also the moment when I got the attention of other people and suddenly found myself sort of pushed to the forefront and like, yeah, you're going to do more stuff in this community now. I'm like, okay, <laughs> but that that pushing me to the forefront, you know, when I was just a, a shy, far more reluctant guy, you know. I owe myself that job, yeah, to my my job, my career now. That that all shifted pretty much all from that point. So was that the impetus then for you becoming uh, chairman of OpenSUSE? Uh, chairman, no, because um, at the time I was, you know, employed by a college in the UK. Okay. Um, so, and typically speaking, and there's no exception to this yet. Um, all the chairman of OpenSUSE have been SUSE employees because it is kind of the it is the one board member which SUSE gets a say in, basically. So, you know, it's their man on the board. Um, but it was that uh, conference that kind of put me on track for becoming a board member in OpenSUSE. So I was a community board member in the board beforehand. Um, and then, it, yeah, a weird combination of events where, yeah, I was a board member. I left my job in the, in the UK, got my job here. Then they suddenly had a vacancy for the chairman position. So they're like, oh, who do we pick? Yeah. So how did you actually come up to then actually being working at SUSE? Like what? What did that happen? Was it just a random thing? Did somebody say, "Hey, you should apply"? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a fun story because it's it's not like a <laughs> it's not like a perfect one. Um, my contributions had got me attention from Sousa on, on more than one occasion. So there'd been more than one job where I'd been sort of nudged or e or emailed or whatever, saying, you know, "We really like you to apply for this." Um, and on more than one occasion, I applied. On more than one occasion, I interviewed. And on more than one occasion, I didn't get it. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, you know, it happens. Um, it happens less these days than it, than, than it did back then. But um, yeah, yeah, there's only so many people who get to do that, right? Um, and then, yeah, I was really getting fed up with my, my old job being a sysadmin. So at that point, I was just sort of scattering my CV anywhere that was remotely interesting, even canonical. Um, and... Uh, who didn't give me an interview, but that's, yeah, that's fine. Um, and then I, and then I thought I might as well try again. You know, there was a, there was a nice QA job at Sousa, seemed right up my alley. Um, so I, yeah, threw another, yeah, threw another application in there. Um, and then ended up in, in that lovely awkward mess where literally I just had my interview in, uh, my second interview, I think, uh, at Sousa in Nuremberg, sitting in, literally sitting in the departure lounge at the airport, when my phone rings and one of the other jobs that I'd gone for offered it to me on, yeah, on the phone. I'm like, ah, yeah, now what? Like, I think that interview just went really, really well. Um, yeah, but yeah, gambled, it paid off. Didn't take that job, got this one. So how long did you work in QA at, at SUSE? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'd have to look up again. Um, it, it's got to be at least three years or so. Okay. Because I've, yeah, I've been about four years in this job now, I think. So Seems about right. This is this is probably my my ignorance, but for the people that I talk to, we're all very familiar with how there was Red Hat and then Red Hat Red Hat Linux became Fedora and then Red Hat Enterprise Linux. I don't hear many people that talk about understanding or knowing how it went from SUSE to then 
OpenSUSE being a thing, and then also there being the enterprise version. Because it didn't go in that order. It was a bit weird. Okay, can you can you explain that for me so I can learn? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I I also saw it as an outsider too. So there's there's a chance that there's some details missing. Um, I can definitely tell you about a lot of emotions going on in the community at the time because basically there was a uh, you had yeah the first there was SUSE the open source distribution. Um, then Novell bought SUSE, then there was SUSE, the enterprise distribution, and the SUSE non-enterprise distribution was still a thing. So there was two SUSE distributions, yeah, one enterprise, one not, and OpenSUSE was then effectively made to be a community to carry on that SUSE distribution. So there's, um, it, I think even Wikipedia got it wrong until I corrected it few years back like there was a there is literally a SUSE distribution SUSE Linux enterprise a SUSE Linux not enterprise 10 if I remember correctly 10.0 which is made by OpenSUSE it's SUSE branded it's it's a SUSE distribution but in fact OpenSUSE made it okay which then makes makes it tons of fun when you then start thinking about things like you know copyright attribution and, and licenses because you know who owns SUSE really like you to yeah, the family tree is kind of weird. Um, and then we've made it weird with Tumbleweed and Leap. Um, but yeah, so it, it all kind of came around there. So it's not quite as clear cut as, yeah, first there was Red Hat, then Fedora, then, then RHEL. In typical SUSE fashion, we've done it a little bit differently. Well, that's fine. Uh, you saw me looking over my shoulder because I actually have some some SUSE boxes behind me. And there's there's always been that confusion as I as I collect them because I'm just, I'm a weirdo. I collect odd things and I choose to collect Linux retail boxes. Is, yeah, it goes from, you know, SUSE, SUSE, then SUSE Linux, SUSE Linux, and then there's SUSE Linux Novell, and then there's SUSE Linux Enterprise, and then, yeah, yeah. then SUSE Linux 10, and then OpenSUSE 11. And it's like, what what is going on here with the naming convention? Yeah, and, and like SUSE Linux 10 and SUSE Linux Enterprise 10 were both out at the same time, but different code bases, overlapping code bases anyway. Yeah, they were fun. So you, you mentioned that the the community had, had uh, some feelings about this. Was it was it frustration? Was it confusion? Was it? It was a combination of things. I mean, basically, I mean, there's you, you can see the. I mean, the the rumors around the history of OpenSUSE anyway, you know, point towards it being created somewhat as a uh, reaction to some of the more negative aspects of the Novell takeover of SUSE. You know, there was definitely some some feeling that that some decisions from Novell were, you know, putting at risk what SUSE does. So OpenSUSE was kind of made to kind of be a bit of a, you know, in the open preservation for the SUSE culture in essence. Um, but because of that generally not perfect relationship between Novell and SUSE anyway, the community definitely was getting more and more frustrated, especially around the, the 2011 timeframe, um, yeah, to the point where, you yeah, know, that lovely conference I was talking about, you know, there was discussions in corners about just forking the entire project because, you know, it wasn't going in the right direction. But of course, by 2011, Novell had been purchased by Attachmate, you know, so, you know, different owner, different management, that management introduced themselves to, yeah, to themselves at that conference. Um, and I think it's safe to say the way they did it was... They they perfectly understood what the community were feeling, those frustrations, and you know said all of the right things, did all of the right things, you know were there in the right tone, um, and and that kind of killed that off, and then really OpenSUSE started really running with its own two feet pretty much after after that. Okay, so if you don't mind uh, going into the the community feelings a little bit more, obviously SUSE has had 
I don't want to say a tumultuous path, but it has been bought and sold a couple times. Uh, yeah, I mean, heck, a couple of times when I was chairman, so that was fun. And there's there's always seems to be when any anytime there's a, a, a purchase or a sale that everybody kind of panics of oh, oh no oh no this is it this is this is what we didn't want to happen. Yeah, I mean that that was definitely true. I think it was definitely true the first time. It was probably true a little bit the second time. Um, but like as chairman, I think I was just I was either on the board or as chair for at least two of those, if not three. And, and it got to the point where it, it's happening so often, like there's an organizational kind of, um, uh, an organizational standard for dealing with this, you know, to the point where it's like, okay, you know, yeah, on one occasion, even uh, Nils, the CEO at the time, phoned me up on my cell phone, you know, as the news was hitting the wires for, yeah, for the investors. So I could immediately run to the mailing list and, you know, keep everybody calm because, you know, it's a really effective way of doing it. When, when a community guy can go to, go, yeah, go to the mailing list and say, literally, you know, I have literally just heard from the CEO, you know, nothing's going to change. Everything's still going to be work out fine. You know, we have his word on this, but like, well, you can't really panic at that point. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's definitely there's definitely been times when we didn't manage that quite so well and the panic did set in. Um, but yeah, I'd say the the last couple of acquisitions and now you know going public, it, it's yeah the community sort of taking its stride and it's it's not nearly as scary as it used to be. Yeah, I guess having gone through the process a few times, you, it's now just like oh, it's it's that it's that time of the year again. When... Yeah, it's happening again. But what do the new managers say about everything? Okay, it's all good. They're buying it because OpenSUSE is part of the good stuff. Okay, that's good. Then we're fine. Yeah, I remember obviously recently the the biggest uh, example of this was when IBM purchased Red Hat. And of course, you know, just Linux wide, everyone was like, well, there goes Fedora. Fedora's gone. And it's like, well, no, you know, IBM kept it going. They, they understand the value because they bought Red Hat because of what they offered. And I'm hoping that going further as more businesses get involved, and obviously there are going to be more, you know, buying and selling of open source companies, that the business world has understood that when there is that community side project, it is extraordinarily valuable and don't screw it up. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. I think there's times even, I think there's, there's always the risk of forgetting that, but there's also sometimes the risk of just assuming the community doesn't need to be tinkered with either. Um, it's one thing that I'm, I'm kind of interested in now because I'm seeing it a little bit more as an observer because yeah, not on the board Anymore, I think. But when you when you see stuff like Sousa's closing the leap gap, you know that's that's a very mature Sousa looking at its community that it's had for such a long time and thinking, you know, yes, we've been hands off for a really long time, but if we do close the gap between our enterprise and our community products, that's like super interesting for both sides, you know. Um, and and that's one thing that I think. Yeah, Sousa's now started taking those jumps for, and it, it's, it, it is scary because you're sort of taking a much more interventionist mode. Um, and I wonder, well, I mean, in some ways you're also seeing that a little bit with, um, that's a positive example maybe, but you're seeing it also a little bit with IBM. You know, the, the death of CentOS can be seen to be sort of the, the dark shadow of the same kind of thing. Of, yeah, getting involved with the community and in this case, killing off something that they were incredibly keen, you know, a lot of people were incredibly keen on. Um, but I don't necessarily always think it's a bad thing. Um, I think if it's managed badly and the, yeah, the fear and panic can set in, then yeah, that's, that's something you're going to have to be undoing for a decade. Um, speaking from experience, you know, like the Nobel Microsoft deal. Um, 
But, you know, but memories do eventually fade, like, after 10 years or so, and it becomes less of an issue. Okay, so jumping off of, of your bringing up memories, when you look back at your growth in the open source world, were there individuals who really helped mold your views on open source and community? Um, yeah, quite a few. Um, yeah, like t- tons inside the open source community, you know, uh, guys like our ambassador Costas, like guys like Andrew Waffer, who's you know, now at ARM and, and all that stuff. They, they, they were very much sort of the early ones showing me the ropes, leading me around all of that. Um, later on, I mean, we've only had a couple of conversations, but they, I, I always found them like super, um, super informative and, and sort of, yeah, they end up sticking with me and I end up quoting from them far more than I ever thought I would. Uh, guys like Greg Crow Hartman, you know, so he was part of Open Source at the time. We've kept in touch since. And, you know, that's, uh, he gets it in a way that even a lot of other long-term open source people don't you? We have a habit. Of, I think in some of our projects of getting, you know, we're in a bit of a bubble. We, we've got our people around us from that bubble, and we don't necessarily have that big picture. Whereas, you know, guys like Greg in the kernel, linked to everything, you have end up with this sort of completely different view of the whole ecosystem. Um, and that, that yeah, that helps give and give, give context where I think sometimes we get lost in our more blink of view, which we have to have at the other side because, yeah, we knew everything all the time. We just get overwhelmed. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on how the open source world is different because of our community. Because if you look at software, obviously it's a product that people can use. And there are billions of products out there in the world. But a lot of those products don't have communities around them. Uh, an example that I've used from time to time is Tide. You know, they make they make dish soap or you know clothing soap and stuff like that. There's there's not really a Tide community of people that are all getting together online and talking about how great Tide <laughs> is, but yet we get this in the open source world. What stands out to you about that? That is one of the reasons of why it gives open source its strength. Um, well, there's I, I actually that's uh, a an interesting question because. It actually touches on a part of the open source communities that I'm a little bit torn about these days. You know, there's there's more than one school of thought when it comes to open source, and um, you're, I st- I'm starting to see more and more projects where the community is kind of almost just there to be a marketing exercise. You know, they want the community of users, they want people talking about it on the internet, etc. Um, but there hasn't been that secret source, which I think has made Linux as an example, you know, the behemoth that it is. And that that special bit being, you know, it isn't, open source works best when it isn't just being a community for community's sake. It works best when that community is there actually achieving something by contributing to that software. You know, it, it's, yeah, it doesn't help having, even it doesn't really help even having a thousand, two thousand people going out everywhere talking about how wonderful your software is. What really helps is having at least 100 or even 10 or even one, you know, person outside of your standard project bubble contributing to that and bringing something new to the actual software. Um, and I think that's something which, yeah, a lot of a lot of more modern open source projects just haven't realized. They, they, they throw open source on there and they stick the stamp on it and they know they're going to get attention for that and it's you know, good for marketing. But don't realize the you know at some point their project momentum is going to slow down. At some point the current authors aren't going to be able to work on it as much as they are. 
And if you have a community done properly, done sustainably, you know, then the project is going to outlive whatever corporate funding situation you have. You know, if the, if the idea is good, the idea can keep going regardless of that because it's open source. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that's what sets open source away from Tide. But I think there's some projects where, yeah, they're, they're more like a Tide community than, yeah, than they should be. So do you have any thoughts on how we as the broader open source community and broader Linux community can help kind of foster that in some of these new projects that start up that just do that initial stamp of, yeah, we're open source. I'm, I'm not really, I, this is, this is one where I, I really don't know yet. Cause of course the, I, I actually see problems in the Linux community because of the pre, the growing prevalence of that other example, you know, it, it often gets thrown around dismissively on you know, Twitter and the like is, you know, just users being entitled, but that's, that's kind of where it's coming from, you know, because open source is pitched to people as, you know, this great public good. And, you know, we talk about the the niceness of open source being, you can, yeah, it's all, it's all there, it's all open for all public. People seem to forget the fact that at the end of the day, all of that is in the goal of building software. Um, and so, you know, if your feedback isn't helping build that software, you know, like it doesn't matter if there's 10,000 bug reports if no one's fixing them, right? It doesn't matter if there's 10,000 ideas for new features, you need just one person writing at least one feature. Um, and and I, I think we need to do a better job of explaining that need, actually, because what I think we do quite now is we, we talk about all the positive stuff of open source in a kind of very superficial way, which creates noise, which is good, which creates interest, which is good, which gets people involved, which is great. And then they make more noise and give more feedback. But if we don't actually convert that to actual bums on seats writing code, all we end up doing is creating more work for fewer maintainers as we burn out more and more maintainers. Um, and I think that's the the biggest risk that open source projects really, established open source projects really face. Um, and at the same time, it, it, the mirror image of that is, it's the same problem that those new projects face. You know, they, they, they haven't figured out how to convert that marketing noise into the actual contributions. I think we'd do a much better job of talking about that problem um, and getting people to realizing that, yeah, if something annoys you, you know, fine, you, you can write a mailing list post, you can write a bug report, but learning to write a pull request will be a hundred times better. <laughs> so do you think this is just something that's come up as a failure just because Linux has become so successful? that users don't really have to integrate into a project. They don't really have to have any association with it. They can just download the package, install it, and go. I think to a point, but then again, you, you see the same kind of thing in the cloud native world with, with Kubernetes and the like as well. Um, and, and, and there you kind of even got even more of a problem because you know when you do come up with a solution to whatever problem you're facing in the CNCF world, um, yeah, the the default mode seems to be, oh, let's make a new project and throw it under the, you know, yeah, throw it under that one big umbrella rather than actually figuring out how to work with somebody else and do something like that. So, yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't just put this as a, as just a Linux problem. Um, I, I think it's one of, of just people not realizing that people, yeah, people aren't on a limited resource. You know, there's a lot of us, but when, you know, yeah, we do need to take care of the maintainers we have. And the best way of taking care of is actually joining them and helping them 
not, yeah, cracking the whip and telling them to fix more bugs. Right. Yeah, I've always viewed open source and working with projects as sort of to to use the uh, what's the what's the correct way to classify this? To use, I guess, the philosophical term, it's kind of a social contract. Good projects, there is a symbiosis between the developers and the users, and they work together and with each other. And at least for myself, when I start using a project and I see that, you know, there is that great, you know, uh, interaction, it it creates passion and a willingness to want to get involved more with that program, that project or whatever it is. And I find a lot of the times with the projects that I work on and, you know, I'll hear people that'll say, hey, is there something I can do to help? And sometimes it's it's not really even like these big giant problems. It's like if you can do anything small, just do this little thing, it'll help me. And then that takes a load off of me so that I can focus on something else. And then that person then gets to do that small thing and they feel like, hey, I've just contributed. I've done something beneficial. I've helped the project. And then now they have, you know, more interest in, in helping it. And I find that it's it's kind of like that snowball. If you can get the ball rolling. Exactly. Yep. Then it can kind of sustain itself. Yeah. That's that's how I got where I am now. That's that's literally my story. So yeah, that that's I think we need to do more of that. And make it more obvious that these projects and I think that's it leads me to an make uh, leads me to an interesting realization actually. But one of the biggest negative feedbacks I hear about OpenSUSE is, you know, what's OpenSUSE's goal? Where's its direction, et cetera? Um, because it doesn't have one. It doesn't have one by design, really. I mean, it it does to a degree, but it's, it's by design, it's, it's nebulous because it's meant to be steered by the community. Um, and I think that's that's a two-edged sword. Um, you know, and I think there's there's a bit of a, an education gap, I think. I think that some, some of those new contributors, you know, want to well, think they need to be told what to do. I don't think they want to be told what to do, but I think they, they, they you know, that somebody needs to give them permission or somebody needs to give them direction of, you know, this thing is broken, go fix that thing. But, but, but that's not how any of this open source stuff ever works in, in reality, right? You know, you want to, yeah, you know, you want to fix something, fine. What What's annoying you? Um, and so I think those projects, which which are kind of that blank slate, you know, need to, maybe make it just a little bit more obvious that it is decided by the community what gets done. You know, it is literally the contributor that decides and the door's wide open. Anybody can contribute. Um, I think there's other projects that get that wrong and, you know, put in things like steering committees and, and try and put structure there. Um, and I'm not, I say it's wrong. I mean, it works for them, obviously. So who am I to judge? But I think if the goal is is to be a long-term sustainable self-sustaining project, then I think things like steering committees and you know feature lists and ordering people what to do where just it's never going to last long term. You know, people's good on the community side, people's goodwill will eventually fade, um, and their interest will fade because you're not going to be able to keep the the managers in line with where the community is unless yeah, there's some magic going on. Um. And it ends up being more and more expensive in the long run, um, you know, so because you end up having to draw more people at it. Yeah. And you also run into the issue of you don't want the developers to feel like they're working without pay. Because like I know exactly. for projects that I, I work on, I do it because it's, you know, it's a labor of love. I enjoy working on it. When somebody else is like, you need to work on this thing right now. It's like, well, I, I can do that. I'm not opposed to it, but like I, I need to get this done. And it's like, I'm doing this in my spare time yeah. instead of going and spending, having dinner with friends or going out and doing whatever. Like I'm sitting in my house working on this because I enjoy yeah. it. 
it's a weird psychological thing, but yeah, I've literally had features in in like the micro S desktop, you know, which is my labor of love right now. You know, no one in management is really that interested in it. You know, I literally started my I told my manager the idea about it because micro S is a bit of a weird one. It's something we did start at work as part of my job. And so I went to my, my boss with my idea for the micro S desktop and he's like, Yeah, good luck, Richard. You can do it whenever in your spare time, but like we're not interested. So I've started it in my spare time. There's been features for that because there's people interested in it where literally I've not got around to implementing that feature because I've just got so fed up with the people asking for that feature. It's completely counterintuitive, but the more people moan about that feature missing, the less enthusiastic I am to fix it, even though it would actually make my life easier too because I use it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's weird how that... Yeah, it's weird how human motivation works when someone's when it feels like somebody's pressing down on your back. Suddenly, the the love disappears, and it's harder to get that stuff done. And of course, the benefit of open source is that anyone can do it. Now, I understand there's people that don't have the, the ability, but I know for myself, when I've worked on projects and somebody said, "Hey, this would be really helpful to get this feature in," but I, I don't think I have. I'm up to the skill level. For me, it's like if you're willing to put in the effort. I'm willing to kind of help mentor you to get you to the point where then you can accomplish that. Um, do you think that that's something that we should encourage more of in the the open source world? Is kind of that mentorship? Absolutely. I mean, you see that working. You know, people, you see that working in the kernel. It's also how we work in OpenSUSE. I mean, if every you know, I, I'm in a position where I'm continually reviewing people submitting stuff to MicroOS, Cubic, or, or to Tumbleweed generally for when I'm, I'm covering for the, the release manager there. So, you know, I'm yeah, able to see everything being come in. Um, and it, it may sound wrong to say it out loud, but it's, it's totally true. We do not treat all contributions equally. You know, if, if, I, get a contrib if, I, if I get a submission from somebody I know who's been contributing for a heck of a long time, I'm going to take a look at that submission and I'm going to find something wrong in that submission and I'm going to project the submission and tell the guy to go fix it themselves because they know better. You know, they, they, you know, I know they know better. I've seen them do better work. If I get, I could get exactly the same submission from someone I've never seen before. Nine times out of 10, I'm going to actually accept that submission, tell them that they did great. Maybe tell them that, you know, they could have done this and this better, but I'm not going to go and make them do it. I'll fix it myself and do that extra 10 minutes work because I want them to contribute a second time. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I don't have time to mentor everybody all the time, but I'm always, yeah, trying to drag more people in and yeah, teach, teach them that way rather than, yeah, well, if I just rejected everything that was remotely wrong, then I'd just be a bot. <laughs> so you've brought up the micro S desktop. Do you mind actually explaining it? Yeah. Give me your sales pitch. The sales pitch. Well, yeah. So it's, I've got to explain MicroOS a little bit first, um, you know, because, okay. because you know it, it started really as you know, could we make a immutable atomic? I can, I guess, I can use the word atomic now because Red Hat using it less. Um, you know, an atomic updating operating system, um, which we, which we did actually initially in Tumbleweed with the, the transactional server, um, but then we realized, okay, this is great, but. The, the transactional server, it was an absolute flipping nightmare when you started using it in production. Because if you if you are updating atomically, then you know the all of the fancy stuff with the sort of automatic updating and yeah, automatically dependent resolution, automatic rollback, etc., started to kind of 
crumble at the seams when the systems sort of reached a certain complexity. You know, so if it, if it kind of was like your traditional old Linux server with mail and web and PHP and MySQL and blah, 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 the most junk you put on there, at some point, one bit of that junk would kind of ruin the whole thing. And you've got a lovely atomically updated brick, um, which will roll back, but it, it never is going to update again because something in that complicated stack is a mess. And so we, we actually sort of took a step back at that point and realized the the best route for this atomic stuff and this, this transactional system is being way stricter with what the user's expected to do. You know, we, we're not putting sort of hard limits in it, but, we, but, you know, from a design point of view, from a documentation point of view, from a expected use cases point of view, you know, the micro OS platform is your single purpose server. You know, it's designed to do just one thing, you know, perfect for embedded and edge. And of course, that just that one thing can be a container system. So you can still do give Apache, MySQL, PHP, but we expect them all, all to be containers. And the one service we have to care about on the operating system side is just running Podman. Life is good. Um, and yeah, MicroOS is going really, really well. We have Slee Micro on the, the commercial side now, which is like selling like hotcakes. So, you know, that's all working well. And I, yeah, basically I was well, at a conference, at another open data conference thinking, what if that one thing was a desktop? Um, which of course, you know, desktops are complicated stack, but you know, what if we then were really kind of strict about what we define as the micro desktop? You know, this is you know, basically not going like we have with traditional OpenSUSE where pick a desktop environment of your choice, pick all the apps you want. Now just like with the micro desktop, it's much more, we're aiming for a much more sort of Chromebook-like experience, you know, you, or Android-like, you know, you're, you're going to get our desktop delivered to you our way, um, which will probably, well, in my case, I'm recommending fully vanilla GNOME. Um, we only package the bits of GNOME we care about, or we only use the Tumbleweed packages, the bits of GNOME we care about. We don't install any applications at all. We don't really care about any of that stuff. All of, yeah, all, all, everything above the desktop itself, the desktop stack, we just throw that around and say, that's going to be Flatpak's problem. And then all your apps come from Flatpaks. Um, so yeah, nice auto-updating desktop, nothing for you to have to manage there, perfect to give to your, you know, grandma to use. Um, and then you just use GNOME software, to app store style, pick your apps, done. Basically, you shouldn't ever need to mess around with the terminal if everything works right, which is kind of a nice idea. What kind of reception have you gotten from it? Way more than I was expecting. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of people interested in it. It's, it's again, a bit of a two-edged sword. Some people are constantly trying to stretch that definition wider than I than I'm, yeah, than it should be. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely got a heck of a lot of interest and, yeah, seem, seems to be spreading quite well. Yeah, the complexity problem I found is one that people don't always realize is coming down the road. I know for myself, when I was a puppy Linux developer, I had, of course, the, what I thought was the brilliant idea of, oh, well, I'm going to ship every update as an AOFS layer, and you can just put that right on top. And yeah, it worked great for, you know, up to about six layers. But then like, once you started to go beyond that, it's like, oh, this oh. is this is going bad. And I can, I can foresee that uh, in, in about seven months, when there's like twenty layers stacked up, that's that's just not going to work. Exactly. That that the the complexity situations we see, and and this is one great thing with the uh, the relationship with Susan and Susan. Of course, we 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 have that communication in both ways. So there's 
there's been tons of times where lessons we've learned with Slim with micro OS has kind of informed what we then tell customers with Slim Micro, you know, even before anyone really even thought about that in an enterprise sense, and and also vice versa. We've had enterprise customers try like completely crazy, complicated solutions with Slim Micro, and we're like, yeah, we're just going to change micro OS now subtly in Tumbleweed, and yeah, it's yeah, we're never going to see that problem again. <laughs> Okay, so looking at Linux and open source in general, um, other than obviously microOS, because we know that, that you're excited about that, what other things do you see that are being developed or being improved that you look at and you're like, okay, that is really cool? Ooh, that's a good question. And actually, it's a tricky one, because uh, when it comes to Linux specifically, outside of microOS, I'm not really that enthusiastic about stuff these days. Um, you know, the the desktop side of things is a bit of a wasteland. Um, I, yeah, um, my feelings on that are well documented, so I won't go over it again. Uh, hasn't changed much in three years. Um, yeah. You mean it's not the year of the Linux desktop? It's not the year of the Linux desktop. It should be, but that should have been before. And, and like the Linux desktop, there's a double-edged problem there too. You know, what people in the real world want from a desktop is not what people in the Linux world want from a desktop. And, yeah, there we go. That's another. That's another mess. Um, yeah, I, I am really interested in what's going on in the sort of on the container and, and cloud native sides of things. Uh, Kubernetes, K3s, you know, all that stuff. I, I really, I really like the idea of of the Kubernetes API basically being sort of the way you run services on a server in the future. Um, I come from a, a HA background when I was a sysadmin. You know, I was building. Yeah, wonderfully complicated high availability clusters. And, you know, the challenge always there was, okay, I've got my storage done. I've got my network heartbeat. Everything's really, really cool. Now, how the heck do I make this service on this machine go over there? Um, and, yeah, I mean, I gave presentations on the topic. It wasn't impossible, but it was an absolute pain in the ass. Whereas now with containers, you know, that problem solved. And with Kubernetes, a lot of the orchestration side of it is solved. Um, there's still too many variables out there. There's too many different ways you can do things like networking, but networking is a very complicated problem. So there you go. There's too many different ways of doing storage, but again, that's a very complicated problem. So it, it, we're going in the right direction there. But the fun thing with that is all of that is like way above Linux. Like Linux is just a fabric underneath all of that. Um, and that's, yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, I guess, why I'm interested in microOS as much as I am. Because to be honest, it makes a lot of what we consider Linux today irrelevant. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think people are going to freak out when they realize that. But um, yeah, ultimately, I think Linux's long-term future is to be just this embedded layer, at least on servers. Well, in many cases, just this embedded layer underneath everything. And what's sitting on top is, yeah, going to be containerized, going to be more modular, and probably going to be a little bit harder to tinker with, probably going to be, yeah, a little bit harder to customize, but it's going to work a heck of a lot more reliably as a result. So, so late last year, SUSE acquired Rancher Labs. Do you get much interaction with them with what you work on at, uh, at SUSE? Uh, not as much as I'd like, um, but yeah, actually, more, but I do get involved with them more than most, um, which is kind of nice. Um, there's some projects with, with customers where, yeah, I'm there as kind of a consulting engineer and we've got a bunch of guys there as consulting engineers. 
to. So yeah, see micro and K3S quite often and they're getting sort of bundled together in projects, which is kind of kind of cool. Um, and I even got a contribution or two to K3S now, which is, which is kind of nice. So flipping an earlier question of mine on its head, again, in Linux and the broader open source community, um, are there things that you feel that we as a community of developers aren't focused on that we should be? Like, are there problems that exist that we aren't addressing or aren't doing well? I mean, we already touched on, you know, kind of the, the community side and, and working on creating that, you know, deeper bonds. But is there anything else that stands out to you? I, I'd, I'd say the, the, the big sort of recurring one that I keep going back to that sort of keeps me up at night with the whole thing is, is project self-sustainability. You know, the ability for a project to keep itself moving forward, to keep getting its own contributors to... You know, to to not need to, in in the case of a lot of these sort of commercial open source things, you know, not need more money to be poured in to keep the thing moving forward. Um, but also, yeah, long term community projects. We we've I think all, all all over the spectrum, no matter where you sit on commercial, non commercial, community or less or com company driven, the we're all doing a bad job of thinking. Actually, ask answering the question. You know, is this project? able to be self-sustaining is it it does it have the governance structure behind it does it have it has it sorted out its copyright attributions has it sorted out its licensing all that wonderful legal stuff um you know do we have a good pipeline for getting new contributors in um you know what would happen if yeah corporate daddy of this project disappeared overnight you know could the project continue regardless um and i, I think i think every project needs to ask themselves those questions and, and and make improvements to really not need yeah, you know, not be kind of relying on that one poor person doing yeah, the thankless task that somehow has kept this whole thing working for the last twenty years. Okay. To to finish out the interview, what advice would you give people who are wanting to get involved in open source and technology? Or to, to phrase it another way, what are the things that stand out to you now that you wish you had known back earlier in your career? There's no, there's absolutely no benefit in being afraid of suggesting your change or, or trying to make your change. Like that's, you know, it's really easy to talk yourself out of, you know, oh, this isn't big enough to bother that other project with or, or whatever, you know, no matter how small or trivial you might try and convince yourself that that thing could be, do it anyway, make the change, send the pull request. You know, if it is something super trivial, the worst thing you're going to do is learn how to do better next time. What generally happens though, is you, you don't even need to learn that because the very act of trying to contribute, even when it turns out as a failure, ends up normally motivating most projects to go in the direction you wanted them to go in. And I, and I think people need to realize sort of that power of power of trying and failing is worth a thousand mailing list posts easily. Um, and, and yeah, so sort of, yeah, don't think that talking on a mailing list is, and yeah, it's, it's enough to get your point across. Yeah, send a pull request, even if it's bad. What's that line? Fail, fail early, fail often? Yeah, exactly. Fail early, fail often. Just keep on failing. I mean, it, it works for me. I think it works for most people if they stick with it long enough. Yeah. It's just by statistical probability. If you fail enough, you're eventually going to get it right. Exactly. And I mean, this, I mean, Tumbleweed is a wonderful example of an entire distribution basically built on that premise. I mean, we, we don't, we don't have any restrictions on who can send us a submit request because we treat them all equally 
badly. <laughs> we expect them all to break everything. And so we test it all in multiple layers. So yeah, you know, just send whatever you want. We'll, yeah, make it somebody else's problem to figure out if it works. Um, it, yeah, it, it works. It, it really does. That's that's what keeps this this engine running far more than any kind of other effort, I think. Well, Richard, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. It's been, it's been great talking to you. Thanks, JT.